So I'm Brett Snodgrass. I am a family nurse practitioner and I am in chronic pain management um, every day of my life, it feels like. Um, thrilled to be working in chronic pain management. I am absolutely adamant that it be provided and that patients be provided um, chronic pain management in whatever form and fashion that is. But I also wear another hat, and that is with the state of Tennessee. I'm, I'm a chart reviewer, as well as I do national work. Um, I have done quite a bit of expert witness and chart review across the state, um, across the United States, on um, overprescribing cases and cases that have gone into trial for one reason or another. I recently finished up a case that was a criminal case. A physician was actually charged with criminal negligence because of six um, overdoses that occurred throughout a, a number of years in his practice. What I can tell you, thankfully, is that he was exonerated of all those charges. Uh, in the midst of that, though, he lost his practice, he lost um, his wife, and he, he is no longer practicing medicine. So we might be very thankful that this man did get off and he was not convicted of those charges. Um, but nonetheless, a lot of things took place along the way, and I actually worked with and defended the nurse practitioner that was involved in that as well, and he had a couple of very astute physicians uh, that reviewed cases for him as well. Um, but there's definitely things that you must include, and I know Jen Bolin, our attorney at large around, around the area and around the U.S., uh, spoke on this as well. But as a clinician, maybe I'm going to come to you from a little bit different point of view. But there's absolutely things that you must include in your chart um, moving forward to take care of chronic pain patients and to do your due diligence to protect yourself. I can't promise that a letter is never coming from the state. Um, but if it does, you want to do all you can to protect yourself, your practice you've built, your family that you, you sustain, um, to um, move through and beyond uh, audits that might come or reviews that might come. I do have disclosures, again, nothing to, related today to what we're talking about, but nonetheless, I do disclose any uh, commercial work I do. We're going to look about balancing factors. There's a lot of things you need to know. So in the room, how many primary care providers are here? Okay. Chronic pain management? Okay, so that's your bread and butter. Um, Anybody else? What else? Psych. Psych, of course. Thank you. Pharmacy. Pharmacy. Thank you. We absolutely need you. What? Addiction. Addiction. Thank you. Uh, so again, a lot of things, a lot of people doing great work. I want to talk to primary care for a moment because I recognize what I'm saying. I'm telling you from one, you know, this is what you need to document for any chronic pain. And in primary care, what are you doing? You're treating the hypertension, you're treating the diabetes, you're treating the this, you're treating the that, you're da, 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 and then you're treating the chronic pain. So it's a lot of things to ask you. And that's why now we have what? Chronic pain specialty. When it gets to be too much or a patient becomes too involved that maybe you do not have the time in primary care, if at all possible, and if it is possible, then referral is appropriate. We're going to talk about specific events and specific items you need to think about within your EHR. How many people are using electronic medical records? Most people. Do they come with pitfalls? Yes, they do. So we'll talk a little bit about that and then finally talk about, you know, how you can mitigate, how you can keep yourself in as best shape as you can, 
Nonetheless, chronic pain is high litigation. Not as high as some other things, but there is litigation to be involved, and we want to do our due diligence to keep ourselves as safe as possible. This is what chronic pain management to me looks like some days. Um, so this is the state and the federal and the CDC, and here's the patient, and there I am. You know, a little stuck. No dog was hurt in the viewing and taking of this picture. I know nothing about it, but love the picture because that is truly what it can look like some days. What are we doing? It's absolutely a balancing act. Symptoms, but keeping that patient safe. The demands that you have to see so many patients because, well, somehow we've got to keep the doors open around here but then the adverse events that we've got to talk about. So I can put you on the medication, but I have to worry about can you drive on it? What are the long-term safety effects? Um, what about misuse and abuse will get in the wrong hands? Then what about just nausea, vomiting, constipation you might have from it? It's a lot of things to consider. Under treatment, which we see a lot of, and over-prescribing, which unfortunately we see a lot of as well in many places, it's kind of all or none is where we set all or none. Um, negative feedback from patients, from other providers, uh, regulatory action when things maybe go awry. So the goal of your pain management should always be focused on the patient's quality of life. We're really going away from that pain score of 0 to 10. Do we use it and do they want it? And is Medicare looking for it? Of course. They're looking for that number. But I will tell you, we're also looking more about functionality. I don't care that a pain score went from five to four. What I care about is you couldn't do something yesterday or when we started treatment, and now you can. You're now active. If I give you pain medication and you're a really good Oprah Winfrey TV viewer, then I've not done my due diligence. If the family or if the patient tells you, yeah, I don't get out of bed much, and we're on all this, these medications that are high risk, then probably the risk is far outweighing the benefits of those medications. So really we want to look at the quality of life of the patient and what we're able to offer that patient with any treatment we are providing them. So let's look at electronic medical records. So why? So in 2008, what we did find out positively was that malpractice payoffs and payouts correlate inversely with the use of EHR. Okay, so the more it's, it's le what is it, legible? They are able to follow up. You can run all kinds of reports to see who needs what vaccination, who needs what uh, hemoglobin A1C, who needs what done. So all of those things have been helpful, but, you know, it reduces adverse outcomes and, and makes a provider even more defensible, if you will, but it does come with problems. So let's look. So we talked about pros. Let's look at the cons. It's beautifully templated, we might say, about 10 pages long sometimes, um, perfectly legible, can read every word, but absolutely can be laden with pages of irrelevant information. Have you ever read through one and thought, let me just drop to the end and figure out what happened here? There's a lot of stuff, a lot of check boxes. There's a lot of things going on that's really irrelevant. And it's really not what anybody is looking for. So if your goal is to make your chart longer to code higher, it's not a good thing. Because um, if you didn't really do it and you're just checking a lot of boxes, that in and of itself can get you in trouble in a lot of places. 
but also not just that, but perfect tracking of who accessed your record because it's electronic, because it's now the new computer age, when they did it, what changes they made could lead to serious questions about your conduct. So let me give you a couple of ins in instances. If you go back after two or three weeks and do your patient records electronically and do the progress note, number one, it's hard to remember who I saw this morning, let alone who I saw two weeks ago. But if you go back, they're able to say, you saw them on October 29th, but you didn't chart on the patient until November the 9th. Miss so-and-so, Mr. so-and-so, Dr. so-and-so, do you really remember about that visit? Okay. What about if in a state where you as a physician have to um, look at nurse practitioner and review so many records of the nurse practitioner that you are supervising or physician assistant or whomever it is, if you do that 2 o'clock in the morning and you're able to go through about 30 charts in less than 10 minutes, well, Dr. So-and-so, did you really read that chart? And did you really, prior to signing that, did you really... Uh, know that they gave patient XYZ this medication and at this dose, and did you notice they were positive for cocaine on their urine drug screen? Sir, did you notice that? Ma'am, did you notice? Not very likely. So just keep in mind everything's a record, and there is a footprint being created in this beautiful, um, well-written, well-legible piece of record that we're using. There's also prompts. How many people get those prompts that come up and you get every drug-drug interaction known to man that really doesn't matter sometimes, but nonetheless, what do you know? You've got to push the enter button three times to get beyond that so you can get the script to print out over on the computer. So what do you do? You ignore them. So you'll get a lot of information given to you within the day, but we ignore a sea of data. What if there's something in there that was potentially important? Now you're liable because you reviewed that, because you have an electronic health record. Prescriptions get to be generated in one click. What does that mean? Automaticity occurs, and so really in that one click, you can very quickly have favorites pop in the patient's name, and you can have a prescription printed out pretty quickly. Did you check their allergies? Do you know what the creatinine is? Do you have any of that information? Or did you just use that quick click of a button and print out a prescription? Again, time stamping is fully discoverable, and let me assure you, they will look. They look at how long it took you to review something. They looked at how long it took you to um, check a, a value, an alert value. I wish I could remember the exact story, but I have a physician friend that reviewed a case, and the question was about an MRI. Dr. So-and-so, on October 7th, it says that you reviewed so-and-so's MRI. Yes, I did. How long does it take you to review an MRI? Oh, on average, what, five to seven minutes? Well, sir, it shows that you reviewed that MRI in 1.7 minutes. Did you review it thoroughly? I mean, it, you tell me it took you six minutes in 1.7, 1 1.5 1 seconds, 1.5 minutes versus that six minutes you tell me it usually takes. Was that really, did you really, did you, how did you miss what you missed? 
Um, so keep that in mind. And again, a trail of access modification is a true digital footprint, fingerprint or footprint, and someone is watching that. Here's what's recommended. This sounds crazy, but keep this in mind. Malpractice carriers actually say if you receive a letter in the mail, and of course when you receive the letter, it's going to be Friday night at 6 p.m., so you have no one to call, um, and you have three days to think about it. But what's the first thing you want to do? Pull up that patient record, review, the case, review it, see what you know about them. Oh, yeah, I remember them. They were so, oh, I expected this. I just knew they were going to sue um, or whatever. What do you want to do? Instead, the recommendation is to wait, not to review their chart, not to go into the medical record, because what? There's a footprint. So what would they say? On June 7th, it appears you received this certified mail letter. What's the first thing you did, sir? You went in, ma'am, you went into that record and reviewed that case. Did you have question? Did you have question about your care that you gave? Well, no, we want to know. We want to remember who the patient was. We kind of remember what happened. No. And what if? You decide to make some changes. Of course, I would advise you not to change anything, but keep in mind what will happen. Your malpractice carrier will send you a hard copy of that chart. Therefore, we ask you to wait to review it. Alert fatigue. In fact, as EHR users, you now get 150 alerts a day, ranging from redundancy, talking about follow-ups, uh, potential mammogram needs, um, a lot of PQRS information, to discrepancies in drug-drug interactions, but 150 alerts. And it's developed, it's a new term, it's now alert fatigue for healthcare providers. Because what do we do? We simply start ignoring it. We know we push three times on the computer to get to the right page. I'm as guilty as anyone else. Um, and we just miss really important alerts, potentially, that could be there to you. So keep in mind why. Uh, worsening renal disease. We have a patient on an NSAID. They've been on an NSAID forever. Well, now they have worsening renal disease, and now we're ignoring those alerts that is telling us, hey, watch out. We're having some worsening. Maybe you should consider changing therapy. Maybe you should use a different medication. Let's talk about Aunt Betty's fall, and I've seen this over and over, and I will be honest, I've been guilty of it. We copy and paste our charts, right? We've got to do something. I mean, EHRs can, in all reality, be more time-consuming than paper charts when we start things, right? Um, and so we do have a copy and paste mechanism, and we're allowed to use that. What do we copy and paste? We copy and paste medications. We have, them go, we have our MAs go over it, but we copy and paste that. Medical history, social histories. And in all reality, a visit from the last time, and then we go in and change our pertinence, which is appropriate. But what will happen? Things will get caught. And I've seen charts where patients have Aunt Betty fell last Thursday for three months consecutively. Well, on average, Aunt Betty could be at a major fall risk and might need assisted living. But if that's not the case, and it's always on Thursday, uh, maybe that's the day she drinks more or something, but I don't know. But nonetheless, if that didn't happen, we need to make sure because that in and of itself will draw attention to a case and say, well, if you copied and pasted that, then you copied and pasted everything. We have to watch out um, for pitfalls. The major thing with chronic pain, and I'm, I'm amazed with this, as I am in chronic pain management and get in referrals, I have patients that are on opioid therapy, nothing else, and we have no diagnosis other than pain. 
And I'm amazed with many patients, you know, we've never had MRIs, we've never worked it up. Well, they can't afford an MRI. But they can't afford the opioids that they're, that they're getting, and they don't afford anything else, but they can afford that. We have a problem. It's not without liability. None of this pain management comes without liability, but your liability increases greatly if a patient is on controlled substances without a firm diagnosis. Now, here's what I'll tell you. Evidence-based practice with lumbar strain, lumbar radiculopathy that lasts longer than eight weeks says what? Evidence-based practice says you only do an MRI if you're planning on injections or interventions of some sort or a surgery. That's all it says. But I would tell you, I think we need to be careful because if your choice of treatment for that patient is going to be an opioid, you better know what you're treating. I'm going beyond, and that's against evidence-based practice, right? I've seen it written more and more, is that you just do it if you're going to do surgery or if you're going to do an injection. Beyond that, they don't need an MRI. And I've even fought with insurance companies about that. Well, what are you going to do for them? Well, I am in an interventional practice, so we might intervention them. We might not. But I need a firm diagnosis to know what I'm treating. And if you have a lumbar stenosis and if you have appropriate, what if you have nothing? What if you get a clean MRI out of it? Could you justify opioids on that patient? Not likely on that patient with just that, that issue. So what kind of pain is it? It must be documented. And of course, what? Your treatment needs to be geared to what kind? Do, is neuropathic train to pain best treated with an opioid? I won't say it's never, but, but is it that the best place to start? No. No. We have anticonvulsants. We use other therapy. So again, that would be a problem if you're just going opioid therapy and forgetting about all the other pop options out there. Musculoskeletal pain, nociceptive pain. Yeah, I'd agree. Probably more NSAID opioid type pain treatment, if nothing else works. Inflammatory pain, what about NSAIDs? Mechanical compressive pain, what kind of pain is it? Keep that in mind. And it's not a panacea. It's not, you know, we're not barking at you about this, but there's a reason. And this is in all reality some old data, but it doesn't get much better. I've seen it since I've been here all the way out to 2015. It continues to go up. I believe prescriptions dropped in 13 and 14 and went back up in 15. So, so it's not like it's dropped off, um, but there's a reason. We do have an overdose risk. If you're going to treat patients with opioids, and I'm never going to stand in any place as long as I live and say nobody should ever have opioids, and I've heard that. I've heard people say it should just not be available to people, and I don't think that's a fair assessment. But if you're going to use them, keep in mind that there is an overdose risk. You have to protect yourself, your DEA, your license through your charting, ultimately with these patients. So keep in mind non-pharmacologic interventions, and I'm not saying put everybody in music and art and call it a day, but these things can work for the appropriate patients. And, or physical therapy, massage, those things still are appropriate therapies. And what if it decreases opioids? What if it decreases the NSAIDs because they have renal insufficiency? What if we can stay away from opioids if we do other things? Getting patients exercising and walking, yoga does work. TENS units, as we know in Medicare won't pay for them, they work. 
I have a child with severe scoliosis who lives on a TIMS unit much of the time. Um, they work. Thankfully, we got it free because, well, our insurance won't pay for it. So, you know, we got the hookup. But nonetheless, these things work. And again, it's frustrating. We pull our hair out because what? These things work and they're not covered by insurance sometimes. You know, so what is it most times? So what is it? Your hands are now tied, but what? You at least need to document it. If you've tried these things, the patients have tried it, fine, document it. At least they've tried something. It's when you have OP, oxycontin, oxycodone, oxycontin, oxycodone, oxycontin, oxycodone for everyone, and we've tried nothing. It's very appropriate to use those medications in the appropriate patient, um, but make certain that you're really documenting that other things have been tried. They may not work. As we know, oxycontin and oxycodone may not work, but these need to be documented. So what's been tried? Well, trigger point injections, epidural blocks, these are all options. Implantable spinal stimulators. And I would tell you implantable spinal stimulators are, and we might debate this, are kind of taking the place of the pain pump, um, you know, the intrathecal pumps. They've kind of taken their places. But these can be opioids sparing in nature. Now, what I'm finding with the, opi the pain stimulators, I'm finding that they have those as well as high opioid doses. So I haven't quite figured all that out, but nonetheless, there's other things to try. As we would agree, migraine therapy, not well treated with opioids, and I'm not just here to bang on opioids today, but, I mean, what else has been tried? Have you failed every uh, triptan? Have they tried Botox? Are they effective? Are they functional on what they're on? Fine. But just make certain other things are being tried. It's just important that you document this. Now, can you copy and paste that into your... Absolutely. Other therapies tried. That can be copy and pasted each and every time to have a record of what has been tried. So let's look at the four pillars of oral pain therapy. Do not forget other things other than opioids. Anti-inflammatories do work. Some patients look at me like I have two heads when I say they come to me on opioids. That's what they want. I thought you're just going to continue my pain medicine. That, well, that's what they'll tell me. They just told me you would continue it. That's what I'm here for. And then I start thinking, well, what about some other things? I tried those. My favorite, though, would have to be anticonvulsants. Have you tried gabapentin? Have you tried pregabalin? Oh, yeah, I failed those. They didn't work. What about gabapentin? How much did you take? Oh, 100 milligrams at night. I tried it. It didn't work. <laughs> All right, then. Um, you know, again, and some of it is our fault. We put patients on medications. They don't ask for the refill. We don't refill it. And then we just don't ever titrate it up, and we go to other therapies. We have to be careful. Um, again, gabapentin, where do we want? About 1,800 milligrams is goal. We don't get everybody there, but we want to keep them on something. And the idea is combination therapy. If I can add in an anti-inflammatory and a gabapentinoid-type product and spare opioids or keep opioids really low, then we've done some good things if, if the patient's appropriate. What about the end-stage renal patient? They're probably not going to be on anti-inflammatories because, well, that you're going to tank them really if you put them on that. And a lot of the renal patients cannot take an anticonvulsant depending on. So maybe opioid therapy is what you have to go through. That simply just needs to be documented. Mood modulators, what's been tried? As we know, SNRIs, um, Cymbalta, Paroxetine, um, uh, Duloxetine, sorry, I was like, that, that escaped me for a minute. 
SNRIs, we do have an indication of chronic pain. So I'm not here to tell you SSRIs have indications of chronic pain. They do not. But what do we have? What comes along oftentimes with chronic pain? Depression, right? And so if you raise moods and get people more active, that in and of itself can decrease their chronic pain. That's where cognitive behavioral therapy comes in. We oftentimes can't change pain scores. And I'm really, you know, I'm not a real fan of the 10 out of 10 pain score. 10 out of 10 pain score is having a baby or passing a kidney stone right now, in, in my eyes. I've done one, I haven't done the other. And that was the babies twice, but no kidney stones. But I've heard, guys, that that is horrible. And I've experienced it by taking care of those patients. But nonetheless, what have we tried? What are we doing? Opiates. Um, there again, where do we have it listed? It's number four. It's not where we start. It may be where we end. And I'm kind of more of an advocate in my older population. Can opioids cause sedation and they can fall? Sure. But what else do you want to give them? I mean, we, I'm not a big fan of anti-inflammatories in the 85-year-old. I'm not a big fan of a lot of the gambapentinoids in that age. Oftentimes, they're more sedating than a, a small amount of opioid. Um, so that's oftentimes where we get in that population. Nonetheless, we have reasons. We have an age. We have aging kidneys. We have reasons. So when are they appropriate? Let's just look at who would be appropriate. And I want to just remind you about the pain assessment. Keep in mind when we're talking about chronic, chronic pain management, I think we always have opioids in the back of our mind. We have other therapies, but opioids are always there. See, we're always thinking of an appropriate patient. Not every single patient that walks through our door doors would be an opioid-appropriate patient. Just because they have chronic pain does not equal an opioid prescription in my practice. So we really need to think about other things. What other impairments do the patients have? Pulmonary disease, constipation, nausea, do they already have all this? Are they already cognitively impaired? That can be a, a poor scenario. Hepatic and renal. And then when we think about substance abuse, keep in mind hepatitis, um, especially hepatitis C, um, HIV, traumas, burns, tuberculosis. You can see all of these cellulitis, recurrent cellulitis. These patients can be at risk for having substance abuse disorder already. So we really do want to take note of those patients in this population. We know the interview process, but it needs to be documented. Don't forget, patients chronic pain, 10 out of 10, let's move on. W what about the pain? What, gets it what makes it better? What makes it worse? Those are the simple things we le learned back in Assessment 101 that we still need included on our document. And we have down at the bottom patients' pain and functional goals. Absolutely. What is your pain score? We're still using it. Medicare is still looking at it. Um, but also functional goals. What can you not do that if we do try therapies, um, you're going to be able to do? What's our goals? And we do know that physical, emotional, psychosocial function matters. And again, by putting this in your chart, what you're doing is building your case if you're choosing to prescribe opioids for a patient. What about past use? So what do we always say about a patient? If a patient comes to you and asks for you the right dose, a certain dose, a certain medication, certain milligrams, certain amount, what are they? Well, they're drug seekers, by all means. But chronic pain providers, would you not agree that many of our patients that one time had something that actually worked can tell you what it was, what the milligram dose was, 
and how often they had to take it. Not saying that's what we write and call it a day. It's McDonald's. Have it your way. But, or is that Burger King? Sorry, Burger King. Um, but nonetheless, right, they know. So I'm really hesitant to throw everybody in a pot and say, oh, if you can tell me what it is, I don't want to know. You know, I don't want to know. No, I want to know what's worked. may not be what I use if it's Oxycontin 83 times a day and Oxycodone 36 times a day. Probably not what I'm going to do, but good to know. Um, what, what have they used? And again, remember that prescription drug monitoring report. A lot of debate. Do I put the report on the chart? Do I document? How do I do it? I've heard people talk about it both ways. I, I'm kind of a minimalist on it. I document that the date we checked it and what it was within normal limits or not. We don't put all, the entire printout on each chart. That's what we do. I've seen it done in other ways, and I've never had an attorney that could answer the right or the wrong way of doing that. But document that you've checked. Okay? It's a footprint you're checking. Contact past providers. Obtain past medical records. Friday afternoon, 3 p.m., got to have the oxycodone prescription. And nope, can't get a hold of anybody, can't do anything. It is not your responsibility, physician, nurse practitioner, or PA, that you have to prescribe them a prescription provide them a prescription that day. It is not your issue at that point. You have a right to get comfortable and feel comfortable with what you're doing, and if that takes a few days to get patient provider records, then that's what you do. You're in drug screening. Obviously, we need to be doing that. Um, there's two options. You have point of care or confirmation. That's GC and LC uh, chromatography. As we know, and what I will tell you, what stands up in a court of law? The confirmation, the GCLC chromatography. If you're just doing point of cares with a little visual read on your cups, not sufficient. I'm not saying you have to do send it out every single time you do it, nor am I saying you need to do your own drug screen every single time you write an opioid prescription. I would tell you to check your state guidelines. Our state in Tennessee have guidelines. We have to do it at least every six months. Depends on risk. That's the minimum. Dosages. So again, what's worked? And again, what are they on? If they're opioid tolerant or naive, that's going to guide you as to what medications you can put them on. How have they worked? I'm not saying you're going to provide them exactly with what they want, but how have they worked? Did they work? A lot of them come to us in chronic pain and say, nothing's worked, so help me now. And then non-pharmacologic strategies and, and what happened and how they worked. If they did physical therapy back in the 70s and they haven't done any since then, I, it would behoove you to send them back through. Now, you know, so the, the physical therapy in the 70s and now is very different. Injections and, and nerve blocks in the 90s even and now very different. So I, I, I recommend patients because a lot of Depending on who did the injection or intervention, very different. We find different techniques work for different people in our practices. So keep in mind, just because you failed it once back in 91, um, it could behoove us to do that again and try that again at least. Objective confirmatory data is what we're looking for. The patient evaluation, the pain complaint, it's going to move you to whether or not you need diagnostic testing. I would also tell you whether or not you need lab work. What about rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and those things? We need to consider that. Vital signs are important. We want to always consider that. What do they look like walking into the exam room? That's important. 
What about that musculoskeletal exam? We need to touch our patients. We need to get them. You know, it's amazing to me. My patients come in in parkas in Tennessee, and they want to sit in a chair and me examine them. Well, I can't get very far with you in a parka in a chair. So we need to be examining our patients and touching our patients and, and, and charting what we're finding. Going back and talking about abuse and substance use in psychiatric history. Again, if you're going to prescribe opioids, it may be very appropriate. You need to be documenting this information. And some patients don't feel that's important for you to know or things along that line. But it is because it increases their risk of misuse and abuse of that medication. If you have a patient that's high risk in primary care and you're prescribing opioids to them, you need to have really good documentation really good follow-up, and know what you're doing if you're going to do that there. Now, I recognize some rural areas, and you might not have access to someone else. But keep in mind that these issues, prescription drug abuse, illicit substance abuse, alcohol, tobacco use, raises a risk of misuse and abuse. Does it mean that the patient can never be prescribed an opioid? No, but it puts them at higher risk. Even family history and a history of sexual abuse. So keep all that in mind as you treat patients. Not only that, what's their social history? Are they no longer working now because of their chronic pain? Are they divorced? Um, so we have no social system now? Do we have no family system now? Um, other things, what else is going on with them? Because that can, in and of itself, raise the risk. Again, doesn't mean no opioids, it means close follow-up and a lot of documentation to support your reasoning. So how do you do that? Do you have to write, patient has no sexual abuse history, patient is not on cocaine, patient is not this, patient, no. What you can utilize is some opioid, some, opioid, some risk stratifications, risk assessments, um, a couple, and I would tell you we're looking. I'm looking to see that you cared about the risk. You thought about the risks. And if you don't want to use, I mean, I like this because I'll say opioid risk uh, zero, dire score 20. So dire score and, and opioid risk is the number, the one I use. You can use whatever. Um, the most common are the opioid risk tool, which I'll show you in a moment. And then the SOAP, which is screener opioid assessment for patients with pain. It's a little bit longer and dire score, and this, so each of these, the opioid risk tool, the SOAP score, can be done by the patient. Here's my issue. Um, the opioid risk tool I do a little bit differently. I don't give it to the patient to fill out. Uh, I talked to Dr. Lynn Webster. He may be here or not. I haven't run into him yet. But I talked to him because the current one that, you, if you go online and Google opioid risk tool and print it out, it prints out in large letters, opioid risk tool. And then it prints out, here you go, so then it prints out all this, and then for your help, it prints out your scoring. So it doesn't take much for a patient to go, hmm, I think they're considering my risks um, uh, with opioids. Not every patient, but most. Um, so I don't like that. So what do I do? In my intake form, it has these questions, and then I get a lot of information, and I ask some questions, and I score this myself. So keep in mind, what are you looking for? Uh, the lower the score, the lower the risk. Does it mean because somebody has an opioid risk tool of zero, we go for broke and never check again? No. But if somebody has an opioid risk score greater than eight, 
They probably need to be in chronic pain management, if at all possible, or you need to be really monitoring that patient very closely and have a conversation. I, I scored this. I feel you're high risk, and here's why. I, I, don't, I don't know if we need to, maybe we do. Maybe we've missed the boat on this. Maybe we need to talk about how to have a conversation with the patient. I'm just pretty frank. Here's the, I have a license, I have a DEA, and you have a need. And we need to make all this work together because if these patients are high risk, they need to know that. We're going to follow you up very closely. We're going to be monitoring you very closely. But keep in mind what we're looking at. So family history that I've just described, personal history, of course, the age, history of sexual pre-adolescent abuse. So let me just tease this out for you because I hate the score. I've always hated it, but let me t I called Dr. Webster not long ago about this score. I'm probably the only one that calls him and asks him about his tools. But that's how I am. So nonetheless, as you can see, a female would get a, a score of three, and a, a male would get a score of zero. And I was like, really? So what you're telling me is it does not affect a male, and it affects a female. He said, absolutely not. Not what I'm telling you. He said, but what we know through research is that these issues affect a male more than this. Um, and he said, if we had to raise, if we raise this score, what would happen? We'd have to raise all the rest of the scores to correlate. Um, so, so I was like, okay, I get it. But nonetheless, that needs to be done. I would also tell you, number two, it's fluid. It's a fluid number. It can change, right? Patients change. Patients get older. Age is an issue. Um, their history probably isn't going to change. But this can all change. You know, some parts of it can change, so the number can change. But keep that, that score on your tool. And trust me, anybody reviewing, hopefully, anybody reviewing an, an, a, a chronic pain chart would understand what an ORT was. So you're safe simply saying, I say, dire score 20, ORT 0, or whatever. And I usually put out beside, if my ORT score is up, I'll kind of put my reasons, what they are. They're young, the patient has a history of pre-adolescent sexual abuse, and has depression. Like, that's how I got to this number. Um, but nonetheless, keep in mind, when we're talking about an opioid, and again, I'm defending opioids to you in a court of law, if their pain is not moderate to severe, you really do not have to have them on an opioid. If their pain is one to two, that's really not appropriate for opioid therapy. Uh, at AANP this year, I did a panel, and I was sitting on a panel, a lady raised her hand, and she said, here's the thing. She said, I have a lot of patients, uh, I'm in ortho, and so we put patients on long-acting this and short-acting that for their shoulder surgeries, and then we do this, and then we do that, you know, to really help their pain. And I was like, like, at what point did we ever think that going through surgery, we weren't having any pain? I had a hysterectomy. I had a pretty good idea. Then if I moved or coughed really hard, I was going to have some pain. You know, I don't know, have, are we setting patients up to say, oh, we're going to give you all of this and you're not going to have any pain. What we could be doing is setting patients up to say, oh, you're going to have all of this and then you won't call me back. And because everything's now a schedule two, I can't really help you after hours, right? I don't know what it is. But nonetheless, moderate to severe pain, other things have not worked. That needs to be documented. No alternative therapy would benefit the patient more. The risks are less than the benefits. So the benefits of the opioids outweigh those risks we talked about, 
talking about the opioid risk tool. Referral to pain and addiction if you're not comfortable or if the risks outweigh those benefits. And then long-acting opioids. To put a patient on long-acting opioids, they need to have continuous pain and need something around the clock. Keep that in mind. Now, what you would say is, well, wait a minute, CDC just said no long-actings for anyone. Well, no, that's not what the CDC said. They said that's not where you start. Um, and, it, and it's some guidelines. Things fall out of guidelines. Doesn't mean that every 1,000, all 1,000 of your patients are falling out of guidelines, because that might be a problem. But people fall out of guidelines. People fall out of the guidelines, so keep that in mind. Titrating. Dose is critical. Monitoring the patient. You've had a conversation with the family and the patient, because what we know is 24 to 72 hours after titrating or starting a patient on opioid therapy, they have a risk for opioid uh, respiratory depression. So we need to know that. We need to document that. Again, as patients are leaving our office and you're putting on a new medication, that needs to be documented that you had a conversation. I always ask, are you alone? Do you live alone? Can a friend at least come check on you, someone check on you, um, to make certain that they are taken care of? So why do we stop the opioids? Well, if we're not getting towards the therapeutic goal, that would be a reason. If they're having intolerable or unmanageable adverse events, might be a reason. What if they're not adherent? So one to two episodes of increasing a dose without a, your knowledge. Okay, so we've had a conversation. We documented that conversation. The next month they came in. They had an appropriate pill count. Their urine drug screen bag came in. Okay, perfect. What happens if three months? They have a negative urine drug screen for three months. Uh, always have a reason. But three, four months, we continue to have this happen. They never have medications left. That can be a problem. And again, we don't need to just mark boxes because we did it. Oh, yeah, did that urine drug screen. Doesn't matter. It was negative for the last four months. But, but we did it. But we did it because that's what the state tells us. Anybody sharing medications, obviously we know, can be of problems. And unapproved opioid uses. What does patients say? I save my hydrocodone to fill bed because it helps me to sleep. Well, obviously there's a lot of medications that can help you to sleep this side of opioids. Um, maybe that's not appropriate. And then, of course, big red flags. And I would tell you, if this is happening with your patients, they do not need to be on opioid therapy. Maybe they don't need to be in your practice. That's up to you. But you need to be very careful of patients using illicit drugs. We've talked a little bit about alcohol use and what your policies might be. I've heard a couple of different people talk about that. Repeatedly obtaining multiple opioid prescriptions, prescription forgery, multiple episodes of prescription loss. I unfortunately just had a forgery issue in my office. Um, the patient showed up for his appointment. The investigators were there, and they took it upon themselves to let them know that he was discharged from my practice before I did and escorted him from the office to the, to the police department. Nonetheless, obviously, big red flag. Wouldn't behoove me to keep this man in my practice. And then what about if the patient gets better? We need to reassess. If our pain scores are dropping on opioids, maybe we can begin to wean the patient and see how they do. We may not wean them completely off, but not. they don't need the same dose from the time they're 50 to the time they're 80. And we will have patients. I have patients now who are 15 years. We're into a 15-year relationship, almost as long as my marriage. They've been with me. 
So patient-provider agreements, you need to make certain you have these on your charts for these patients, and I would tell you have them signed yearly, and talk to them about it yearly, just to remind them what their responsibilities are. I'm not going to go through everything, but just to tell you, you need to have a patient-provider agreement on your chart. And monitor their adherence. Again, not just checking a box, but monitor for the adherence. We're going to still continue to check prescription drug monitoring. I have to check it with every single opioid prescription that I prescribe in the state of Tennessee. Yay, Tennessee. Um, it, it's helpful. It can be cumbersome as well. Um, but nonetheless, check your state guidelines if you have them. If not, you need to periodically be, be querying your prescription drug monitoring. I would also tell you with all my new experience with prescription forgery, you need to query yourself. You usually can do a reverse lookup and see who's getting prescriptions under your name. If you do not recognize those, call your local police department or DEA agent. So you're in drug screens. I'm going to run quickly through, and I know we are coming down to the wire. I talked quickly about that. Big thing is point of care, that's your cup in the office with just the peel-off label, really is, what do we know? Lots of false positives, not a lot of information. It kind of guides therapy is what I say. Kind of, it's a, it, causes, it causes conversation with the patient. But it really doesn't tell me exactly what product is in there. It doesn't tell me exactly what it is. Uh, opiate can be morphine. It can also be heroin. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know from a point of care cup. So confirmations are needed. You don't have to confirm every single time, especially as you get a patient within your practice for a long period of time, but check state and guidelines. I would say do it no less than every six months um, if, you, if, if you're not following state guidelines. You can use patient counseling documents. You can document that you gave a patient this, or you can have it uh, copied and put in the patient chart. These are the information I gave this patient. If a patient goes off, out and takes every bit of that ahydrocodone the first week, this is where the information I gave that patient. Or with EHRs, now you can print a summary of the visit if you're lucky and get your chart done that quick. But you can give them that, and they, you have record that I gave them information of how they're going to take it. We can't go home with every single patient and make certain that they've taken their medications appropriately, but we can document the education that we've provided. So some documentation pearls. Don't forget Aunt Betty's fall. If you get nothing from this, just remember that. Please do not clone the chart and keep copying the same information. Your HPI needs to be original every single time. It really does. It cannot. I know we get into a habit of saying this, patient doing well in current therapy, blah, 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 blah. We just do. We have to change it up. It doesn't need to look the same on every single patient you have, but definitely not that Aunt Betty fell every time for the last four months either. Diagnosis is vital. You must know what you're treating. I recommend that there is an ICD-10 code for every other thing, but also chronic musculoskeletal pain. But why are they having that musculoskeletal pain? There's usually a reason for it. You need to find it. If the pain increases or it changes, don't just chalk it up to chronic pain. We have had patients and we've had litigation where patients have developed tumors or some type of a metastasis or a cancer, and it's been missed because it's been chalked up to chronic pain and opioids have been in increased when therapy, when appropriate therapy should have been given. So if their pain suddenly increases or if it's different, you need to go looking for what that is. 
and don't just check a box. Again, prescription drug monitoring. If you didn't check it, please don't say you did because they they, every, every state is online. They know if you did or did not. Um, but also urine drug screen. If you have a urine drug screen for the last six months that's always negative and you're feeling really good about yourself because you did a urine drug screen, if you don't talk to the patient about why that is negative and make appropriate changes in therapy, then you can get in big trouble for that because there's a good potential that patient is diverting. Age matters. Major issues and extra documentation should go into patients under the age of 45. We know there's an increased risk of misuse and abuse. Doesn't mean that because you're on an opioid and you're less than 45, you're going to, but that is a higher risk. So just make sure your documentation looks appropriate. The other thing is if you are in a practice and 70% of your patients are under the age of 45 on opioids, you probably need to rethink that practice and what is going on there. Because our older patients are really where it's reserved for, and even those patients are not always appropriate. So I really have to take a look twice to put an, a younger person on opioids. Doesn't mean that a rheumatoid patient or some other patient, I've got some pictures of a rheumatoid patient that she's 30 and she's on opioids, low dose and appropriate. So it doesn't mean never, but we've got to be careful. Neonatal abstinence syndrome is huge, and that is the new talk, and we need to be documenting. I have 15 to 55, but I would say any woman of childbearing years that has not had a hysterectomy or some implant that will prevent pregnancy, you need to be, our state regulations say um, you're in pregnancy the first visit, and then we need to document last menstrual period and um, birth control for these patients because patients are at risk if they are born with an opioid-addicted um, child. What did you prescribe? I see a lot of charts, and at the end it will say, continue current therapy. Well, I can go th digging and trying to figure out what that is. Please make it easier for people, and please make it easier for yourself. What did you prescribe? How much? How many? And follow-up, because that is so important for our patients. All right. Thank you so much for coming. Um, late in the afternoon, I know you have places to be. I'll be happy to take some questions up here if you want. If not, have a great rest of the conference.